to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. On the program, we are talking about a medical condition that may place men at risk for isolation, depression, falls, and fractures. Also, what medical conditions will make your fight against the coronavirus that much harder to beat? And what about coronavirus? How hard is therapeutic development? And why is it so complicated? This is on the heels of the approval of the Eli Lilly antibody for mild to moderate COVID. We talk low sexual desire with Dr. Lori Brado and why sexual rejection hurts so much. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. As you know, I am a uh, registered nurse, but I'm also a nurse continence advisor. And uh, I got into that field a number of years ago because nobody else really wanted to. <laughs> it's not the sexiest subject you ever could uh, could have. But, um, you know, it's a very important subject. And this is Prostate Cancer Awareness um, Month. And we are at the end of the month. I realize that. But we have been talking about this um, for for a little while now. And so joining me on the line. I'm delighted to have urologist Dr. Dean Elterman. Good evening, Dr. Elterman. Good evening, Maureen. Nice to be with you again. I'm so glad you could join me again um, because this is such an important subject. I actually had a colleague say to me the other day, I was actually talking about this this new medical device, (laughs) the Contino, and she said, oh, you're kidding. Men leak urine? And I'm like, yeah, you didn't know <laughs> that men leak urine too? And a lot of people associate it with little old ladies. The marketing is pink. The packaging is pink. Um, we think about leakage of urine and we think women. But it's something that men suffer with, uh, especially after prostate cancer treatment. So their cancer is cured, yet they have some quality of life issues that can really bring them down. That is true. Um Men particularly are prone to leaking after prostate cancer treatment and most specifically prostate cancer surgery. Um, We almost expect every man to leak a little bit of urine after their prostate is removed for cancer. And then slowly over the weeks and months that go by, that continence does return. But of course, it's very bothersome when it's happening. And there is a small fraction of men, maybe around less than 10%, who will have persistent leakage even after a year or two. And so products like Contino and other devices are really helpful to stop the leaking and, and get them out of pads and out of diapers. And which is which is so important, and I know the work that you do is greatly appreciated by anyone who uh, has the benefit of coming to see you, because you deal with a lot of, uh, your clinical expertise is in um, other issues related to bladder health and leakage, like benign prostatic hypertrophy or enlargement, um, and overactive bladder, for example. That's right. So I'm, uh, I'm a, in practice at the University of Toronto at the University Health Network, And, you know, urology is an amazing uh, specialty because we get to help and touch the lives of many patients. And it's broad. There's cancers, kidney, bladder, prostate. Uh, There's incontinence, there's overactive bladder, there's kidney stones. And my particular area is really narrowed down to treatments for overactive bladder, and particularly um, when medications and and more conservative things don't work. We have uh, procedures to treat overactive bladder like a Botox injection into the bladder, as well as these bladder pacemakers, sacral neuromodulation. And then on the other side, I do a lot of work in benign prostate enlargement. So nothing to do with cancer, but as men get older, their prostates get bigger, and it gets increasingly difficult to pee. They get a slow stream, incomplete emptying. They even leak a little bit when their bladder becomes overactive. And so we can treat 
bladder conditions, and benign prostate conditions. Now, now those there seems to be uh, similar symptoms with um, oftentimes that men report um, that may be overactive bladder that might seem similar to um, benign prostatic enlargement. Is, is there a diagnostic way or, um, you know, to differentiate between the two so that a, a man gets the proper diagnosis? Yeah, that is a great question. So, one of the key things to be able to differentiate is, is this a prostate symptom or is this a bladder symptom? And we kind of have this knee-jerk reaction that, oh, if men have a problem peeing, it has to be their prostate. But of course, they have bladders too, and they can develop overactive bladders. And so the nifty little mnemonic that we have for an overactive bladder is FUN, F-U-N. So we're looking for the FUN symptoms of frequency, urgency, and nocturia, meaning waking up at night to pee. So... Those are the overactive bladder symptoms, and of course, they can overlap with some prostate symptoms, um, but it's really important to give the right medication and the right treatment because often we're, we're giving men prostate medications, drugs like alpha blockers, etc., but their bladder symptoms don't improve. So we have to really know at the beginning what's their bothersome symptom. Right. And um, we're getting back to uh, stress urinary incontinence because you're talking a little bit more about voiding dysfunction, if you will. Um, it, the um, stress urinary incontinence, that's the type that men experience after um, prostate surgery. Is that right? And that's not related to stress <laughs> necessarily. Right. Yeah. So stress incontinence has to do with physical stress we put on our body. So in men and women, if you're laughing, coughing, sneezing, bending over to pick something up heavy, you're stressing your bladder. You're increasing the pressure in your tummy and your abdomen, and it pushes down. And if you have some sort of weakness uh, in either the pelvic floor or the muscles that control continence, you're going to leak urine and that stress incontinence. And that can, of course, happen uh, much more commonly in women, but certainly it can happen in men particularly after prostate cancer treatment. And, and sometimes I think it's a little bit harder to treat because for overactive bladder, you know, there are conservative measures um, like, like avoiding diary will be, will, has a 30% placebo effect or bladder retraining, calming the bladder down, um, redu- reduction of bladder irritants. But with stress urinary incontinence, it, it's really um, limited uh, unless there are devices, which uh, one is a clamp, which a lot of my patients have disliked tremendously, but then and there is this new technology that we talked about earlier, the Contino device. So tell me a little bit about that device. Yeah, so the Contino device is a, a very novel little treatment that we have designed here in Canada, made here in Canada. And essentially, it's a small urethral insert. So it's almost like a teeny tiny plug. Uh, it's shaped almost like an oval uh, pea, like the vegetable pea, and there's a little tail. And essentially, very easily, men can, uh, without any discomfort, insert it into the tip of the penis, and it will essentially block the leakage of urine, and they can take it in and put it out uh, as often as they want. And it's very, very new, discreet way of preventing leaks from happening and not feeling wet all day while having to wear a pad or a diaper. And, and it's comfortable, I imagine? It is. I mean, I, I, the patients that I've uh, had, it takes a, a little bit of getting used to, like wearing a new pair of shoes. Uh, but after a couple of days, uh, it just becomes second nature, uh, and they don't even feel or remember that it's in. So, yeah, very, very uh, user-friendly option. And they still get an urge that, that, or that sensation that they have to avoid? Yeah, absolutely, because much more normally now the bladder is going to be filling as opposed to leaking, 
and those stretchy muscle fibers in the bladder are going to actually feel the sensation of the bladder filling up. And when you feel like you need to go, you'll get the appropriate message to go to the bathroom in time. Right. And now I understand you're still recruiting for research around this um, particular device? We are. So we've uh, completed a few of our initial studies, and we are still recruiting for men who have stress urinary incontinence uh, and who are interested in uh, this product. It's Health Canada approved. There's no cost to be in the trial. Uh, There are a number of different centers, I believe, both in Toronto and Vancouver, and so men can go on to the, uh, the My Contino website uh, or the uh, Life360 website and look under clinical trials uh, for the Contino device. And what exactly are you um, studying here with this? What are, what are the outcomes you're looking for? Well, the main outcome is going to be a reduction in leakage. And so typically uh, men will have a certain number of pads that they'll wear prior to using the device. Um, then they're going to start to use the device, and we can actually measure pad weights. And then we also have a number of questionnaires, validated questionnaires, voiding diaries uh, that men can fill out, and we can assess their degree of improvement over the trial period. Which is fantastic. You know, you're, I mean, this device is, is Health Canada approved. It's available for men now, but you're continuing to study it and see how um, it can benefit even more so. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, when something is Health Canada approved, that's the first step, but we really want to know as, as scientists, as physicians, how well do these devices uh, work in what types of patients and what types of men, what degree of incontinence can be uh, treated. So we actually know that uh, it's very effective both for mild as well as much more severe forms of incontinence. But that we would only know that by doing a trial. Which, which is awesome. Dr. Elderman, thank you so much for joining me again tonight. Urologist extraordinaire out of the University of Toronto. <laughs> Appreciate all of your great work. It's a pleasure to join you anytime. Thank you. Are you tired of the pandemic? Do you have pandemic fashion fatigue? Are the pandemic fashion police after you like they are me? Um, It's brutal. (laughs) I tell you, we're all tired of it. But here, joining us on the line to tell us, give us some hope to... uh, understand what our future looks like, especially in terms of therapeutic treatments and, and other, um, other important aspects like vaccines, is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, Max Rady College of Medicine, Rady Faculty of Health Sciences, University of Manitoba, of course, and his research interest lies in emerging and re-emerging viruses. And this virus has emerged with a plum. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Kinderchuk. How are you doing, Maureen? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm a little tired of the pandemic, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, we're all there, right? And I had to laugh when he said, you know, trying to have me bring in a glimmer of hope to all this. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. <laughs> sure. We need some hope. We we do. It's a tough way to live. I don't know if you were listening earlier, but um, my listener Ken, you know, his life has changed dramatically, and many people's lives have changed dramatically in all of this. And you know, we're looking at nine, ten months here, and you know, we are looking at some vaccines, but um, 
distribution is going to be an issue. Supply chain is going to be an issue. Uh, People actually accepting the vaccine is going to be an issue. We're looking at, I heard a number today, some modeling around um, after Joe Biden is inaugurated on January 20th, we're looking at 500,000 more deaths in the U.S. and that he's entering a very, very difficult time. And and so is Canada. If they're looking at 500,000, we're looking at 50,000 deaths here, potentially. So yeah, it, 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 it's concern, right? And, and certainly, um, you know, it's the only way I guess I can, uh, you know, fathom kind of what we're going through is, you know, I, I was born in '77, so I was a kid in in the the '80s, and I remember the, you know, obviously the the HIV and the AIDS crisis, and you know, I, I there was, you know, even as a young child, there was a time period where, you know, I, nobody knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. And there was that, you know, that that shock of, okay, what, what are we dealing with? Um, we, we were able to get through that. And, and certainly, we were able to figure out how to, to provide treatment, uh, you know, quite, I, I think, quite astoundingly quickly, given the time period, um, and, and move ahead to a point where, you know, now having, you know, an HIV um, positive result is certainly not a death sentence by any stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, their, you know, treatment is, is amazing right now. And I think where we are with COVID is, yes, it, it's been certainly bleak in 2020. Um, 2021, I think we're, we're coming out of this. And even the other Dr. Kinderchuk said today, we were driving around that, there is that kind of sense of of hope on the horizon that by next year at this time, things could actually be back to normal. Which would be just amazing. Um, but why is it so difficult to find uh, therapeutics for uh, COVID-19? <clears throat> yeah, the, so the, such a great question, right? And, and I, I never want to make it sound like therapeutics are a more difficult business than vaccines, but... Certainly, when we think about therapeutics, it, it isn't as simple as, okay, we need to find a drug to give somebody when they're infected, and and that will take care of, you know, their, their symptoms and take care of the virus. Um, it very much is a question about the timing. Um, if we are trying to produce drugs that target the virus and stop the virus from producing more copies of itself, um, we, we can certainly do that. And there are certainly lots of different drugs and compounds that, that people have identified that, that work very well in a, a petri dish in, in the laboratory. The problem is when you start looking at trying to add this uh, or, or you know, give this to, to a human or to an infected animal, now it becomes a question of timing because in a lot of cases what will happen is if you're a little bit too late and that virus has started to create a lot of copies of itself, um, regardless of, of how much of the compound you give, the virus is already well ahead of the game mm-hmm. um, and you can't actually get an effect. Well, now it becomes a question of, well, how early do you need to give it? And in some cases, it may actually be right at the point of infection. And that's something for this virus that that we can't actually uh, do, given how it transmits. Um, Same thing with drugs that come later. We know that if, you know, if you're looking at an antiviral, um, much like with influenza, if you give uh, an antiviral too late, once basically that, you know, inflammatory response is kicked in and, and that is now driving disease, the antiviral no longer has any effect because at this point the virus actually is secondary to what is is causing disease it now becomes a somewhat of a disease of self um so that's why we see things like corticosteroids that have become so important for severe disease um this kind of creates an issue for us when we're creating drugs because you not only have to find something that is very strategic in in what it's targeting 
But also the timing question becomes a, a really big concern. And, and I can tell you from the, the amount of different compounds that, that I've tested in, and, uh, and worked with in the past, whether it was Ebola or for SARS-CoV-2 or for influenza, um, it, it is amazing how few of those will ever see the light of day from, uh, from the point of view of being licensed because they just simply cannot actually be provided to a person to give them any sort of benefit in the clinic, even though they look amazing in the laboratory. Uh-huh. That's such a challenge. Now, now, getting over to the vaccines, which is um, looks like we're on the horizon of, but there are, there are currently three main types of COVID-19 uh, vaccines that are undergoing uh, phase three clinical trials. And they, they're different, but they act the same. So the mRNA vaccine, the protein subunit vaccine, and the vector, vector vaccine. Which one should people get, or does it matter? Is it the fact that they all work the same and just get a vaccine? <laughs> uh, I mean, listen, there's ultimately at the end of the, of the day, we want to see people get, get vaccinated um, with, uh, with whatever products have actually been licensed and meet, you know, kind of met those phase three uh, clinical trials and and, and make uh, that safety and efficacy standards. I really like the mRNA vaccines mm-hmm. um, because the efficacy has been so high. And at the end of the day, you are actually providing something that uh, that allows your cells to produce a protein of the virus, not not at all anything related to to the whole virus itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically generate antibodies. It's they're very effective. They're very easy to produce uh, on on mass, or much easier than than a lot of the uh, the other traditional vaccine platforms. Um, I think they're really going to be the wave of, of the future, where they're essentially a plug and play technology for hopefully for a variety of different viruses. So I, I'm a big proponent of those. Um, the problem is they've never been licensed before, so this is going to be uh, a first for us. Um, but you know, uh, science is often messy this way, where um, it, it takes a while for something new to come out. And once it does, that really changes the trajectory of, uh, of you know, how we're actually producing these types of, uh, of, of therapeutics and, uh, and vaccines. Right. And, um, and so these vaccines effectively recognize that the protein you spoke about doesn't belong in the body and then yeah. begins making T lymphocytes and, and antibodies to fight against um, this virus? Yeah, so it, it, it's, a, it, you know, it's a bit of a balance, right? Because you want to generate these, these long-term antibodies. So you have you know, kind of a, an immune memory that, that's created. Um, but you also want to be able to prime the immune cells to, to also be ready. That's why you hear things about talking about you know, T-cell immunity. Um, so yes, it's, it's partially about getting you know, those, those lymph sites uh, primed to generate antibody and recognize, uh, you know, foreign antigen when, when we're introduced to them, but also to have, you know, those T cells kind of ready and, and primed for, for action as soon as, uh, you know, as soon as you come into contact with, with that virus or that microbe again. So I think we're, we're still honestly in a bit of gray area in fully understanding how immunity works. It's complex because it needs to be. Um, but, but I think we're getting a, a better sense of the fact that we want to have both arms uh, being, you know, really being elicited uh, by these uh, these vaccine platforms. Right. And when they are testing these vaccines, and it's upwards of 60,000 people, I, I gather, that have been yeah. in the clinical trials, um, they use a, let's hope, <laughs> they use a combination of people. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's just not, you know, white men, old white men. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that gets all the privilege in life. Um, but because uh, it's, it has to be shown to uh, work for everybody. 
Absolutely. And what do we know about COVID? Well, we know that certainly it affects, um, you know, disproportionately uh, people that are elderly, but also minority communities. Uh It it is one of the the factors that I think we talk a lot about seniors, but we don't tend to talk about as much, at least, about minority communities and the overrepresentation of severe disease. And, And that's something with the clinical trials that they've really tried to focus on is getting that broad spectrum of folks that, that are in the, uh, the the different clinical trials so that we have an idea of how these vaccines work across different populations and not just in a very skewed representation. That's right, because um, there is a lot of talk about how this vac- the vaccines will be disseminated or distributed. And, you know, they talk about emergency and ICU, room, ICU uh, docs and nurses and then the support staff in those areas as well. And then they talk about, um, you know, people in long-term care homes and their, and their care workers also. But then there's this over 65. But uh, it's my understanding that about 35% of people in minorities um, account for the COVID uh, deaths yeah. and under the age of 60. So yeah, we really have to be very careful and, and provide the vaccines to those who need it the most and in the order. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that we, we still have not, uh, I think, at least in, in North America, um, done a really good job of is recognizing the, the disproportionality of, of our society and, and this in particular with minority populations. Uh, they do face a disproportionate burden of disease. We've seen this with 2009 pandemic flu. We certainly see it with other infectious diseases and COVID uh, fits in there as well. Um, we have to recognize that that these are communities um, that, that need to get vaccinated uh, and get vaccinated quickly because mm-hmm. these are areas where the virus will spread and where we will see transmission that will continue on uh, for long periods of time if we don't get control of, of those areas. Exactly. And I want to and I want to talk to you about that when we come back. We're going to go to the break, but I, I do want to talk to you about um, are we going to still have to be doing all this social distancing and masks as these vaccines are rolled out and uh, and also uh, how effective they will be for people with comorbidities. My guest is the infamous Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. We are talking about coronavirus. Hopefully we won't be having to talk about this for too much longer, but I, I think we are talking about it for a bit longer. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, thank you so much for staying on the line. Thank you. So I, we, we've talked a lot about, and I don't know if you're listening too, but and I see a lot of patients in my clinical practice. And it, when I do want to say if you out there have a question for Dr. Kinderchuk, the number to call, one 9898 That's one 9898 We've talked a lot about comorbidities, so people with diabetes type 2, obesity, cardiovascular issues. Will those people... Um, Will the vaccine work as effectively for those people? Now, I understand it has, these vaccines have between 90 and 94% efficacy rates, um, but is, is there still going to be some, uh, you know, disadvantage for people with comorbidities? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're, we have to wait to see the, the actual data come out from certainly from the, the Pfizer and the Moderna um, data set. So one of the problems we've gotten into to, in 2020 has been uh, a lot of this kind of science by press release phenomenon where, you know, we, we hear the, you know, the, the efficacy results, but we don't necessarily see the, the actual data uh, that, that's attributed to this. So uh, right now, I, I don't think we know. I think we, we certainly know there's a, rep, a you know really a cross representation of people from from different groups uh, w- within the, the clinical trials, 
Um, hopefully, uh, these numbers are reflective of those with comorbidities. And, and currently, with the mRNA vaccines, again, one of the advantages here is that you know we're, we're dealing with something that's helping produce a protein. Um, we, we shouldn't see any sort of disadvantages like we've seen with uh, some of the uh, the vector vaccines in the past or or live attenuated vaccines. So I'm hopeful, but really, we, we've got to wait and, and actually see what the data says when when it finally gets pushed out. Right. And I know there's been a lot of talk about supply chain and distribution and yeah. uh, dissemination of this vaccine and who gets it when, where and why. Um, but will at what point will we, uh, it, it's it's still going to be important for people, and I'm talking to you anti-maskers out there, <laughs> for <laughs> to wear a mask and socially distant and wash your hands and, and wear gloves, depending on the activity that you're doing. Um, how how much um, how much of the population needs to be vaccinated before we can kind of you know remove the mask, if you will, start kissing yeah, again? Mean, <laughs> well, right, exactly, right. And so you know we're we're looking at I, I think still the, the kind of the herd immunity um, you know quotient that's come up has been sixty to eighty percent um, to, to try and actually get you know this virus completely kind of sussed out from from our communities. Um, but I think a lot of it's going to be based on on what we're seeing in regards to community transmission. So, you know, looking at like places like Winnipeg and Manitoba, it's been in, you know, when they kind of mid-teens, kind of low-teens, so that 13 to 14 percent. Um, if we can get it back down to, you know, 1 percent or below 1 percent, and that's sustained, and it's sustained across Canada, um, then I think we actually have a good chance of being able to see those restrictions relaxed as the vaccine is being rolled out. But it's really going to depend on on where we're seeing uh, transmission and, and what it looks like uh, as we move into 2021 and through 2021. Wow. You know, um, it, the other piece of this that we forget is people think, you know, do you know, you know, they'll ask the question, do you know anybody with coronavirus? I mean, I think a lot of us are saying yes now, um, yeah. but they're also saying, you know, less than one percent have died from it. And um, but that's if it's, it's OK, if it's not your loved one. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, it's the impact on the resources of the hospitals and the healthcare system. That's another comorbidity of this coronavirus. Absolutely, and I think you know why. Listen, I, I'm a I have a family member that, uh, that that has been in the ICU with with COVID and oh. has, has moved out, but has complications. Um, but I, I also deal a lot with with physicians and, and frontline healthcare workers. Um, you know, trying to advocate for for their needs. There, there's the aspect of the personal protective equipment and, and the toll on the healthcare system. There's also the toll on them um, mentally as well. And, and we saw this in West Africa with with Ebola, with people that were dealing with patients nonstop that that they you know a lot of these healthcare workers had you know PTSD type disorders at, at the end of it because right. of just the obvious depression that they go through so th- I think we have to appreciate that this is going to be a very uh, you know kind of long-term uh, turnaround uh, in regards to, to our recovery as a whole from from covid right I heard a horrible story recently and it was about somebody who tested positive uh, but because they didn't have any symptoms, they still, and I, for anonymity, they flew somewhere and they brought their parents with them. And yeah. then um, the parents got uh, coronavirus, ended up hospitalized. They were, you know, desaturating, requiring oxygen. But one of the family members also um, caught it and ended up in ICU on a ventilator and and has sequela as as you mentioned. But here's somebody who yeah. thought, okay, I'm co- I'm positive, but I I'm not sick. I'm still going to yeah. take this trip. And and 
who knows how many people that person infected along the way. Well, you know, the, the, this, the devastating part of COVID, I, with, with Ebola, you know, a lot of people ask me how I compare the two. Ebola, we knew who had been infected because everybody ended up sick, whether they lived or died. They, people ended up very, very sick from that disease. Uh-huh. With COVID, the, the unfortunate reality is that there are a lot of people that don't end up sick, but they're able to transmit the virus. Uh-huh. And that's what has put us behind the eight ball so much because we can't figure out where to stop these chains of transmission. And ultimately, people continue to die. And that's the, the saddest part of this is that every day, another family you know, has basically their lives turned upside down because they've had a member that, that has passed or succumbed to, to this disease. Exactly. I view everybody as asymptomatic positive. Jason, yeah. Jason yeah. Dr. Kinderchuk, thank you so much for joining me once again and educating the listeners about this very important subject. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Maureen. Keep well. It's always a good show when my next guest joins us, Dr. Lori Brado from the University of British Columbia. She's a registered psychologist. She offers psychological therapy to patients referred from both UBC Departments of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Psychiatry, as well as the BC Cancer Agency. She has been awarded many scholarships, fellowships, and research grants. She has completed her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of British Columbia, where her research focused primarily on psychophysiology physiological aspects of sexual arousal in women diagnosed with sexual dysfunctions. She joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Brado. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for joining me. I'm so delighted to have you. It's been too long. Let me say that. It has. <laughs> it has. So you're doing some, once again, some extremely exciting research um, for women uh, and especially very, very much needed in a pandemic, uh, the breast study. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's called the breast study and it's focused on survivors of breast cancer. And the good news is that uh, survival rates for breast cancer are going up with better treatments uh, that are more specific and personalized to women. The downside, of course, is that it means that women uh, are often living with with side effects of treatment. And one of the most common side effects of treatment is sexual dysfunction. Um, So that might be pain with sexual activity. It might be changes in arousal and response. um, And most commonly is a decrease in sexual desire. So the breast study is really evaluating an effective psychological treatment, two, two different psychological treatments, but for the first time we're bringing these to breast cancer survivors. It's fantastic. Um, you know, it, low sexual desire or sexual arousal issues or orgasm problems, any one of those uh, sexual dysfunctions are, are common when women are just navigating life in general on the daily, um, yet alone throw breast cancer at, at somebody and um, their life is really turned upside down in spite mm-hmm. of the, um, the great advancements that have been made, especially in British Columbia. We have very, very high outcomes uh, after five years, um, which you noted. Um, So tell me a little bit about these um, sexual dysfunctions. How do they play out in women in general, Mm -hmm. uh, whether they have uh, been diagnosed with breast cancer or not? Yeah, so so definitely the sexual concerns that breast cancer survivors talk about are not specific to that group. They're experienced by quite a large number of women as well. So low sexual desire is, um, just as the name implies, this is the woman who says, I'm no longer interested in sex, I'm no longer motivated, I never initiate, I don't respond to a partner's initiations. 
And the, the, the really important aspect is that it's distressing for her. It interferes in her life in some significant way. Um, we also know that, that uh, because of the hormonal treatments that happen um, with, with breast cancer uh, treatment, and especially with the aim to keep estrogen levels as low as possible to reduce the risk of, of recurrence, this does mean that it contributes to vaginal dryness, which can contribute to pain with penetration. So whether that's penetration from sexual intercourse um, or uh, even having gynecologic exams can be very, very painful for women. And so, of course, you can imagine that if sex hurts, a woman's interest and motivation for sex is also going to decrease over time. So unfortunately, women often find themselves in this vicious circle where even if they have some motivation because it hurts, that that, uh, drives out any remaining desire that there is. Yes, and that's a big problem for a lot of women, uh, vaginal dryness and painful sex, uh, breast cancer treatment or not. Um, is, is some of the low desire the result of women being devastated psychologically? Mm-hmm. Um, does that contribute to it? Yeah, it sure does, Maureen. And just like all sexual concerns in women, there's there's biological and hormonal factors. There's also psychological and social factors. So um, just having a diagnosis of a breast cancer and, and the extreme fear and anxiety that goes along with that, will my treatment work? Will cancer recur? Will I die? What will happen to my partner, my family? Um, and so all of the anxiety and worries that go along with a breast cancer diagnosis, even with uh, an amazing team and lots of reassurance, it, it can create lasting anxiety and chronic stress that directly contributes to sexual dysfunction. Um, and then, of course, there might be body image-related changes. If a woman has had uh, lumpectomy or mastectomy or, or bilateral mastectomy, um, and, and those changes to a woman's sense of self and her body can also um, directly contribute to the, the psychological aspect of, of sexual dysfunction in women. And, and sensation may be gone as well um, with mastectomy. Absolutely, for sure. So if, if a woman is, um, is someone who previously really enjoyed erotic touch to the breast or to the nipples, um, if there had been now surgery to that area uh, where the tissue is, is removed, that really important source of erotic sensation um, might be uh, totally eliminated. So it becomes really important for women to find other ways to continue to feel aroused and, and sexy and, and sexual. And that's part of what the breast study aims to do. Right. And I imagine that women during lovemaking um, may get into their heads or be in their heads as opposed to be in the moment. Um, thinking about, you know, am I, is my partner finding me less attractive? Is, is mm-hmm. a, am I going to survive? Who's going to be the mother for my children? Uh, you know, and, and worries and those anxieties. So tell me about um, what it is that the breast study is evaluating. What are those cognitive therapies? Yeah. So the the description that you provided, Maureen, is exactly right. So um, a woman might be very much preoccupied and, and worried uh, during the sexual encounter. Um, and so one of the treatments that we've found in many other women, uh, not in breast cancer survivors yet, um, is mindfulness meditation treatments. And so these essentially are, is a, it's a set of skills that involve 
teaching women how to be very present in a non-judgmental way. And so we do the exercises with them and then we encourage them to do the exercises on their own and then gradually bring that skill, that practice of paying attention non-judgmentally into the bedroom. So that's one of the two treatments that we're evaluating. The second one is basic sex education. Mm. Uh, So giving women information, accurate scientific filled information and dispelling myths and debunking stereotypes. Um, And it turns out that that alone can be very effective. Maybe this isn't, I'm sure this is not surprising to you at all, Maureen. Um, But I think it is surprising to a lot of people that just providing scientific information about sexual health can, can be very therapeutic. So what we're doing is we know that both of these treatments work. What we're evaluating really is which of these two treatments works best for whom so that when a woman um, reaches out to her healthcare provider for help, that the healthcare provider will be able to, um, in conversation with a woman, determine which of these two treatments might be best suited for her. Oh, very interesting. I mean, I would think that second treatment would benefit all women. <laughs> it sure would. Yes, we and we just finished another study that we found that exact same thing. Yes, exactly. I, I speak to a lot of women about uh, their desire to expand their views mm-hmm. of sexual pleasure. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, pleasure isn't discussed, is not, you know, many, many women, most women have not been educated on pleasure, on sexual pleasure, and the the fact that sex is is meant to be mutual and and consenting, Um, but some some of the education has, um, uh, has said elsewhere, uh, you know, very, very different. <laughs> Let's just say the education has not been where it should be. <laughs> no, it is not. And, you know, I remember saying to this one woman, um, you know, why would you go back with that guy when you weren't even attracted to him in the first right. place, you know, when right. sex is for you too? And she said, that's the most profound thing that you've yeah. said, you know, and I think sex is for you too, ladies. I, I often yeah. say that, you know, and, and so many people, so many women are surprised by mm-hmm. that or, or people who identify mm-hmm. as women. Um, the other question I wanted to mention, well, you touched upon a little bit is the vaginal dryness that goes along mm-hmm. with some of the treatments for, um, uh, women who have uh, had breast cancer and mm-hmm. and the importance you know of of vaginal moisturization and and you yeah. know estrogen is the hormone regulator of the urogenital tract yeah. and um, personal moisturization i I wonder how many doctors talk to their patients about that um, afterward and you mentioned estrogen and that you yeah. know keeping it very low and so some women do not want to use vaginal estrogen, which is low dose after they've yeah. had breast cancer, especially uh, estrogen-based breast cancer. But that that's another area where we need to educate Dr. Brado <laughs> about vaginal yeah. dryness can lead to painful Absolutely. sex and that yeah. there are hormone-free personal moisturizers. There sure are. And it's, you know, we need to have a conversation about moisturizers and also lubricants. And those are, those are two different topical agents mm-hmm. used in different ways and um, and and really lubricants which should be used every time at the time of sexual activity are really intended to make sex a bit easier and a bit more pleasurable um, and then moisturizers of course are, are put into the vagina but it becomes really important for women to speak to their healthcare provider um, about safety and risk and concerns um, and make sure that they do ask the questions because a lot of women uh, simply don't ask they, I think they, they believe that we can 
can't use absolutely anything at all because there might it might contribute to a risk of recurrence. But the science tells us that there actually are some very safe and effective options for women. Absolutely. And I think it's important to get that word out. Well, it's exciting um, research. You're recruiting in British Columbia right now? Both uh, British Columbia and in Alberta. And oh. here's one of the silver linings of COVID. Um, the study is entirely online. So we welcome women from across both provinces of BC and Alberta um, and uh, really are using this as an opportunity to, to spread the word and reach women who are really uh, don't have access to the local services at their hospitals or healthcare providers. And how can women access this study? So um, best way is through our research website, which is broadolab.com. So my last name, lab.com. And you just search studies and the breast study is the first one that comes up. You can read about the study and then click on a link and it, and it takes you to a page where you can fill out some information for us to get in touch with you. Well, that is fantastic. Thank you again, Dr. Broder. You've dedicated your life to sexual health research. Uh, you've helped so many women, so many couples and so many families, quite frankly. Thanks. Thank you so much, Maureen, for the opportunity to talk about this really important study. Well, we're not going to let it wait this long. Next time, we're going to have you back very soon (laughs) to talk more about it. Have you ever been rejected? Rejected? Who hasn't? I've been. It is very, very painful. But sexual rejection is something altogether different, and it can actually affect your relationship big time. You had a great day. You're at home. You're in the mood to make love. You turn on some music and some wine. Your partner comes home. And you think, all right, baby, let's go. And then you give your partner uh, a, a sign, an advancement that perhaps, you know, you might want to go up to the bedroom, but your partner pulls away. And then you notice that your partner is cranky. They tell you they've had a long day. They're too tired, too tired to even think about having sex. But I'll take that drink. Thank you so much. This is the story of far too many couples. And uh, I, I have so many people who present to my virtual clinical practice in, with their sexless marriage. And fatigue is the number one reason for low sexual desire in a relationship. And uh, it can strike men and it can strike women as well. Um, women feel incredibly hurt if they are the sexual, the person who, um, sex, makes sexual advances on their partner, if they are the sexual initiator in the scenario that I described. But we tend to think that sexual rejection doesn't hurt men as much. Well, I will tell you that sexual rejection hurts women incredibly, really even almost worse because, uh, the conventional wisdom is that all men want is sex. But if you don't want to have sex with me, what's wrong with me? But men feel that sexual rejection rejection as well. They feel the pain of that sexual rejection as well. It's based on two assumptions. The first is related to the masculinity theory, which states that men desire sex for physical and surface level reasons rather than for emotional connection. Nothing can be further from the truth. And this is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. And I've learned this from my prostate cancer patients who have told me that after uh, they their cancer was was um, treated and cured, and then they were left with issues like urinary incontinence, which we spoke about earlier on in the program, and then erectile dysfunction, they felt that what they missed, it wasn't the sex necessarily, but it was the intimacy. And so intimacy does mean a lot to men as well. If men initiate sex and their efforts are rejected, 
then, you know, we think it can't hurt that much because they've only missed out on the physical aspect. But that is not true. They have missed out on the emotional aspect, and that means a lot to men as well. That second assumption why we think it doesn't bother men so much is related to sexual script theory. And that states that in heterosexual relationships, men should initiate sexual activity and women should be the power, you know, have the power about it. They are the gatekeepers. They're the ones who say yes or no to those sexual advances. And if men initiate sexual activity more, it also follows that they would experience more rejection. And this all makes us think that rejection can't hurt men that much because they must be expecting it. But just because of the sexual scenario, the rejection scenario that I talked about is more likely to occur to men because women experience low sexual desire more than men do, it doesn't mean it's any easier to handle. In fact, it may be even that much worse for men. In fact, the more often rejection occurs, the more it can really hurt a man's confidence and ego and even decrease his interest in sex and even can lead to anger and issues in the relationship. Something else that I wanted to address in terms of low sexual desire and sexual rejection and the importance of sexual rejection is I hear from a lot of couples uh, in my clinical practice who come to see me uh, virtually these days, of course, as that's all the visits are, or virtually, um, that they are the initiator. The men will say they are the ones that initiate. My wife never initiates sex. And uh, and the wife will say, yeah, that is true. I will not initiate sex. So they, so they come to this um, situation, really, and I, and I often find it's not just men, it's women too. Women are heartbroken. Women have not um, had that... Um, you know, they've not felt that their partner loved them or felt that they were beautiful or liked their body and therefore, uh, or men will feel rejection um, because repeated, repeated sexual advances are met with no one after another. And, and oftentimes they will come and they'll just say, uh, you know, just fix my sexless marriage. You know, you're the one. You can you can do it. And it's like, no, I cannot do it. You have to do it. But it's not just about going to a cabin and having sex, which is what a lot of of these people tell me that uh, therapists, sex therapists in particular, have told them. There's so much that is beneath the covers that you can see in the couple. Um, the man has felt significant rejection, for example, in one couple that I'm thinking of. He's angry. He's upset. The pandemic, he has gained weight. He doesn't like his body. We also think that that's just associated with women, or he thinks that his wife doesn't isn't attracted to him because he has gained the weight, and that may not even be her thought. She is exhausted, overwhelmed, working outside of the home, inside of the home, a set of twins, two other uh, children as well, um, just recovering from, you know, having had a baby and still working in her own business inside and outside of the home with very little help. And so strapped to the max financially. Most people I'm talking about are people who are not describing the occasional rejection or a week or two without sex. These are people that have been having sexless relationships over the long term. Of course, in relationships, there are periods of time when sex waxes and wanes, and that's normal, and you go with the flow. But I'm talking about people who are having sex twice a year, 10 times a year, eight times a year, and it seems forced, and the person doesn't feel like they're into it or doesn't seem like the person you're making love with is even there. This, these are so, these are the sentiments that I've heard over and over again. This sexual rejection is extremely difficult. 
and men begin to behave in ways that will help them avoid that rejection. And so they actually begin to have less interest in sex because that's actually going to reduce their pain. It's going to reduce their hurt and reduce the frequency and the quality of their sexual advances. And there was a recent study done by the research, the great researcher Amy Muse and her colleagues, and it supported that finding. Over the first two phases of a three-part study, the researchers explored how well 128 couples were at reading signs that their partner was interested in sex. And Muse found that across her first two studies, there was a similar pattern of men underperceiving their female partner's interest in sex. So Muse conducted a third study to explore why this might be the case with a focus on the potential role of rejection. There were 101 mostly heterosexual couples between the ages of 18 and 53. The relationship length was six months to 22 years. And over the course of three weeks, the couples were asked to keep a diary of their sexual activities. And one of the statements that was asked by the participants in the study was to respond to on a scale of one being not at all important to seven indicating extremely important was I did not want my partner to reject me. I did not want my partner to reject me. The researchers found that on days when men were particularly motivated to avoid rejection, they were more likely to underperceive their partner's interest in sex. In other words, when men reported feeling that they were more averse to the possibility of experiencing rejection for whatever the reason, feeling insecure, they had a bad day, they were tired, getting feedback that was negative at work, they missed sexual cues from their partner, and they did not initiate sex, and they were less likely to report thinking about it. So it's, it's an adaptive response. If you think your partner might not be in the mood, it seems too risky to get it wrong and have that pain of rejection again and again and again. And again, I have to go back to communication. Communication is critical. It is so important in terms of um, understanding each other and knowing each other and learning their cues. When a partner hears that their rejection hurts more deeply than it seemed, the partner sometimes rejects less often and tries to initiate more. I'm Maureen McGrath. You've been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.